We have, uh, we've been spending some time this fall working through a series that we're just simply calling Headwinds, <laughs> a study from the book of Acts. Now, the point of that is we're, we're kind of refreshing ourselves on this kind of idea that we as a church, we haven't talked about this in quite a while, we as a church are called to minister together. We are, we are called to bring the gospel forth. And again, as Karen said, one of the best tools we have for that is the Christmas child boxes. How wonderful is that, that, that the gospel will go forth with these. But you know, there's things more that we, of course, have to be about corporately as we as a church are seeking to understand who is it God is having us to be, what are the things we are to be giving ourselves to, and... Um, just moving forward with that. And as I, as I see that, I just saw a name here. I thought, wait a second, I missed something. Will you please forgive me? I have to interrupt because I will lose, keep, lose my train of thought. That was beautiful what you ministered, Jenny and Steve. I saw the other Steve Oswald here, and I went, I never even acknowledged. That was absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. That, that was just beautiful. Okay, coming back to this now that I can think about this, we are, um, we're, we're wanting to think this through again. We're wanting to believe, and I do completely, that God wants a new season of growth, a new season of just being able to, to, to look at how he has worked. Because he's done it before, the work of the kingdom is not done, and I see no reason why we don't trust him for another season where we say, God, thank you for the grace and the goodness and the kindness you've poured out. Now, as we anticipate that and seek to move towards that, there's something we need to understand, and we'll see it again today. And the book of Acts is why we're looking at that. It's just something called headwinds. See, the kingdom, the dark kingdom, is not going to give up those enslaved to it, like, oh, without any, without any fight. No, the dark kingdom is going to seek to hold on to and enslave, uh, still, uh, kill, steal, and destroy lives as much as possible. And so we can expect a pushback. And we're calling that pushback headwinds. And today we've titled this particular headwind as we go into this particular study, we've called it more aggrieved. Because we saw the aggrieved before. They were so frustrated and angry that they thought they'd solve the problem of Jesus Christ and his ministry by putting him to death, only to find out a matter of weeks later You've got people preaching in his name, performing miracles in his name, and now they're really upset. And they took it as far as to beat these guys in order to get them to say, look, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Well, now we have, they are more aggrieved, because you'll see today that things go a lot further than simply a beating. And it's a huge passage that hangs here together. We don't have time to look at all those verses, so if you will be patient with me, what I would like to be able to do is to um, lay these out in such a way that we will pass through the entire passage, but we will not be able to read every verse, because it just simply, it, time is not going to allow that. So if you'll allow me to, to uh, do that, let's head in to uh, Acts chapter 6, and we want to pick it up in verse 8. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from the Cilician and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. 
Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now the first thing we might want to consider as we're facing headwinds, how do we deal with that? Because we want to understand, well, what, what, what did the early church do? Okay, how is it? Here's the first thing. Be a vision. Be a vision. Just have the face of an angel in light of all of this. John? you got a ways to go. Okay? It's going to need a little work, buddy. It's going to need a little work to spruce up that, that thing. I, you know it would be nice if you maybe, maybe if you could get a little, little bit like of a light that sits about here and just shines on you. So we're shine. Be a vision, John. Okay? Just, just light up when people are, are around you. One thing that I want to, just for us to consider, you see, because Stephen is preaching, right? Stephen is going out. He's carrying out the ministry that God's called him to. And it says in verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You know, that just kind of stirs people up in frustration. You just get angry at that thing that just keeps pressing on you that you can't resist. You can't get, you know, get it to stay in its place. And this is what's happening with them now. They're, they're finding out that we can't stop this message from going forward. I recall getting really, really angry at a, at a chest of drawers one time. I was working in Dallas, a very hot day, and two of us are a team moving this couple out of their two-story home. Because I worked for a moving company then, I looked like a moving company type guy, don't I? All right, I really got what it takes for that. And we're bringing this one chest, of, one chest of drawers down a stairway. And I am just exhausted at this point. And I can feel the weight of it. And I'm resting. And it just got away from me. <laughs> and down it came. Put a hole in the wall on the landing. And I'm embarrassed and, and all of this, right? But I know I'm just exhausted here. I could not resist the weight of that any longer. I did not like that chest of drawers. I was kind of angry at that stupid chest of drawers that I could not resist its weight, and it, it got the best of me. See, that's what it's like when we have something we're doing all we can to being overtaken by something. And guess what? Stephen's ministry, full of faith and power, great wonders and signs, they're doing all they can to resist the message of the gospel going forth, and Stephen is just becoming an irritation. So, some people come together, they start putting false stories together, and they call him into the council, and it is in the council that he's the vision. Be a vision, John. You do that, okay? So it goes on from there. Now we're in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? They give him a chance to speak, because he's effectively on trial at this point. They're going to give him a chance to say exactly what's going on and, and the things that he's accused of. And Stephen gives them a long, I wonder if this isn't the longest or certainly one of them sermons that we have recorded for us. 
Beginning in verse 2, he says, he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country from your relatives and, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, that is the land of Israel. And God gave him no inheritance in it at that point, he didn't get the inheritance, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give, him for a, to give it him for a possession and to his descendants after him. So here's the point. Stephen starts giving a long history lesson. And the history lesson begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he brings up Abraham, who is, of course, the father of the Israelite nation. And he recounts for them these things which they know and how God worked on Abraham's behalf and how God made promises to Abraham and promises that seemed a long way off, like, hey, guess what? There's going to be these descendants after you. They're going to get this land, but Abraham and Sarah have had no kids. How's that going to play itself out? Because they're getting pretty old at this point. So he reminds them, this is where they began. And then, and then in, in verse 8, you know, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And then he goes on in verse 9, and he talks about the story of Joseph, something you, you know, all, every Sunday school kid knows about Joseph, the coat of many colors, and then being shipped off into Egypt, and then the famine that comes. So he's giving this history lesson, which takes all the way, when you're talking about Joseph and the death of Jacob, takes it all the way to the end of the book of Genesis. So you think that might be enough to lay the groundwork, but oh no, Stephen's just warming up. If you pick it up in verse 17, you get, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, remember Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man, we've just jumped into the book of Exodus, by the way. We've just jumped 400 years in time. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And that, of course, is the male children, because try, he's trying to suppress the population. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. He was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, he was being exposed so that he might die. Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So now we're in the book of Exodus and we're learning about this guy by the name of Moses. Stories which you know, stories which they all knew. He's just recounting it for them. He goes through, he gives the details, how, that, how Moses struck down an, an Egyptian, and then he thought that his fellow Israelites would be proud of what he did. Instead, they're like, hey, who made you a judge over us? You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? Realize that he was now found out, and so he flees, right? And he goes to the backside of the desert. For 40 years, he's there. He recounts how then Moses was uh, confronted by God with, through an angel in the burning bush. You know that story. They know that story. And God says to Moses that uh, you're the one who I'm going to use to deliver my people. And then it, he makes note in verse 37 that this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren uh, him you shall hear. 
And Moses prophesied the coming of Jesus Christ, which of course is significant in this context because that's the guy they're preaching about who's causing such a stir, is the Jesus Christ who came, died, buried, raised again. So he continues on with this long history lesson. Verse 44, we find out he enters into the book of Joshua and the books of Joshua in 1st and 2nd Samuel. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles. Because Joshua is the one who went into the land, after 40 years of wandering, he went into the land, conquered the land, and laid it out for the people of Israel. Uh, it took it from the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling uh, for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So now we are passing through centuries worth of time. At this point, it's probably covered about eight to nine centuries worth of time of history. And he reminds them that, hey, they were given this tabernacle. It was movable. But when David came along, he wanted to build a solid structure. He didn't get to. Solomon got to. So he's got all this stuff that he lays out, all things that they agree with. They're following him. They get this. I could imagine about this point they're going, tell us something we don't know. What is your point? What is it you're getting at, Stephen? Verse 51 is where he brings it home. For you, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which... Of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now he's talking into the prophets that are in the Old Testament. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Prophets spoke about the coming of Christ. Moses spoke about the coming of Christ. He says, you now are the betrayers and murderers. This one they prophesied, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The word said, your own word, your own law said to anticipate this one who would come. He has come and you killed him. And you continue to resist this, the ministry of his spirit which, which gives testimony to him by the power of the things that are happening around us. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. John, the second thing you need to do is see a vision. Okay? So you need to first be a vision. And then after preaching, then you need to see a vision. Just look and see Jesus up there. Okay? This is how we're going to get through this together. John, all right? This is what you need to do. Now we need to see a vision. Then they cried out with a loud voice. i got to just tell you, it's really an interesting right there. Loud voice, it's megaphone. The word loud is mega, and the voice is phone. Okay? It's a megaphone. It's like they had a megaphone by which they were making themselves known. They stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, here's where it's at, John. First, you've got to be a vision. Then you've got to see a vision. Then you've got to own your profession. That is, guess what? If you're going to be called to die for this thing, you die for it. Do not back up. Do not back up, John. You hold on to that profession, that truth which you are declaring about the gospel. This is how we're going to get through this together, people. Now, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The reason I just kind of singled out John and said, hey, here's how we'll do this. You know, be a vision, see a vision, you know, own your profession. It's because sometimes that's what we tend to do with this stuff. We tend to take it and think this is an example for us to follow. I don't know how you have an angelic face. You're good looking, don't get me wrong. But the face of an angel, I mean, to just see a vision that is there that was opened up for Stephen, okay, they were in their own context. This isn't a pattern to us for how we preach the gospel, but there is something very significant that is taking place here. One is just, we're, we're, we're being given that note, and I think I touched on this with you before. It's, a, it's something readily seen in the book of Acts, as Luke wrote the book of Acts. He introduces a character, and he pulls him off the stage, and then a little later brings him back and gives you a fuller story on him. We just got introduced to a very significant character. As Stephen is stoned, he just happens to mention there's a young man by the name of Saul, and they lay their coats at his feet. And he's consenting. And then he mentions that, yeah, and then when this was done, now he's really full bore going into houses, dragging people out. He's wreaking havoc with the church. That's what's going on. We're going to hear more about Saul in chapter 9. He's going to come back a little bit later. But here's the point, friends. First off, the work of the kingdom will not be without resistance. The work of the kingdom will not be without resistance. We can expect that as we seek to move forward and make Christ known, the evil one will use any method he has available to slow that down. And so we see here in the book of Acts, first you had those who were aggrieved, they beat them. Now it's to the point of they are stoning them for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because that's now how fired up they are that they cannot withstand, they cannot, they cannot put a stop to those who just keep talking about Jesus. And so it got kind of hot and heavy for Stephen on that. The work of the kingdom will not be without resistance. We see that in Acts 6, 8 to 7, 60. But here's something else for us to consider as we get to chapter 8 and what we know comes following. The work of the kingdom cannot be resisted either. It will not be resisted. Do you catch this interesting little note? In chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Ring any bells? 
Do you remember when they asked way back in chapter 1? They said, you know, hey, is, is this the time you're going to reveal the kingdom? He says, eh, not yet. You're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You see, the evil one steps in, says, I've had enough of this Stephen guy, stirs people up to the point that they stone him, and out of it comes God's plan on how the gospel is going to move out. The persecution that arises drives people, drives these believers to Judea and Samaria, and what do they carry with them? The gospel. Just like these little boxes that go all over the world. And they carry with them a message of the gospel. These people who are being persecuted are carrying with them the message of the gospel. The work of the kingdom cannot be resisted. That's the encouragement to the early church that Luke wants them to gain from this. That when Satan has played his ultimate hand... God is still at work and able to use everything to accomplish his ends. The work of the kingdom will not be without resistance. The work of the thing, kingdom cannot be resisted. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It's not going to happen. So friends, where does, that, where does that bring us? Well, I'd like to think in these terms. As we're talking about who we are as a church, as we're trying to understand God's, God's work in our midst, I would like us to think that God is the one who's going to make things work for us. Not for us, for His benefit, for His glory, for His kingdom. I had some time ago, uh, many, many years ago now, probably told this story, but I, I've had on two occasions people try and directly challenge me effectively how I could possibly be a church, a, a, a pastor in a church with people like you. What's wrong with you? And I was honest with them. You know, <laughs> well, I, I can start with the pastor. <laughs> If you want to know about problems in the church, let me start with me. Because I'm just a broken sinner. Barely hanging on sometimes. But you see, Philippians says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. So number one is you contemplate how God might be using you within our context as a congregation. Know that God is at work in you. That's where our confidence comes from. It does not come from our own righteousness, from our own church attendance, from our own sense of goodness, from things we have accomplished in life. It comes from the fact that God is at work and He is perfecting you into the image of Jesus Christ. So there's one thing to keep in mind. And the second thing is that no headwind will defeat His purposes. That's what we're seeing here. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in, is not in vain in the Lord. Isn't that a magnificent truth? See, because when we talk about this thing, I know as we talk about ourselves corporately, it says, so, 
So God, we want something new and fresh from you. Some of us are going, I don't want that. Why would I, why would I put things at risk for that? Why would, I, why would I disrupt anything in my life? Why would I make the sacrifice that it takes to be involved in ministry and in service? And the reality is, friends, real simple. It's the only thing that we're going to do in life we're guaranteed to win. The only thing we're going to do in life where we're guaranteed to win is to serve Jesus Christ. Because we're on the winning team and everything that we do on that team matters. Big upset in football yesterday. The Fighting Illini expected to lose by 30 points to Wisconsin. Won by one point in the last minute kick. I got to say that because it's a great illustration. No, it's because that's my alma mater. Okay, so there's no point to the sermon whatsoever, so we'll pass on that. <laughs> you see, Wisconsin went out there figuring we got this thing. We got it. This is ours to lose. They have the best running back in college football, and uh, we're just 30 points they were favored to win by. And Illini is a hapless school as far as its football program. It wasn't in the bag, was it? It wasn't guaranteed. There was nothing like that. They thought it was. That's why I say, friends, there's only one place you can be guaranteed to win because your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we can give ourselves to all sorts of other things. Can we not? Give ourselves, devote ourselves to all sorts of other things which when it's all said and done are meaningless. Not this. Not this. I was reminded, it was just so much fun. Thank you, all of you who were with us on Friday night. Some were able to stay for the prayer service, some weren't. Thank you for ministering to Kathy and, and to Joe's uh, family, John and Deb and the Williamses. Thank you so very much for being there. But uh, somewhere along the line in the course of the evening, it was somebody brought up how um, they just remember Joe and Kathy on Wednesday nights sitting out here and kids would come to them and they would share Bible verses as part of Awana. And what a blessing it was that they were there and they were serving. Think about that, friends. That ministry, as simple as it is, or, or was, and then Awana structure changed a bit, and, and then that, it brought an end to that. But for those years of faithfulness, and we say sat there to listen to kids' Bible verses, understand that's marked in heaven. And that's going to be acknowledged one day when rewards are handed out. And that's going to be praised and blessed when many of our other accomplishments that we were having during those years would just be, they're forgotten, they're gone, it's, nobody will ever know that we did them. But these precious sisters sitting here for the sake of the kingdom to just listen to kids come and share Bible verses will be remembered. It's the only place we can't lose, friends. So we're going to wrap it up with two thoughts. Number one, if you're not involved in some way with us, 
Would you seriously consider that? Because we'd like you to play on a winning team. Not that we as a church are the winning team. Jesus Christ building his church is the winning team. Let's make sure that's clear. Because we may get involved in some things or do some things like, that didn't work, not from a human perspective at least. But Jesus Christ is going to win. And playing on his team, going to celebrate a victory with him one day. That's number one. Number two. If our labor in the Lord is not in vain, will you please understand they really do have eternal significance. Everything you do with these boxes, God is aware of it. God's going to use it. Kids are going to be blessed. The gospel is going to go forth, but not without a headwind. We know one of the reasons we're asked to pray when the boxes are in transport is because we know they can get held up in a port. There are those who would seek to kind of side, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Get off sidetrack. Sidetrack the ultimate destination of the boxes. The evil one doesn't want to see millions of boxes going out. We'd be foolish to think that it's going to happen without potential problems. But God's going to use them. So can I ask you to take seriously, and as Karen has asked us prayerfully, this, this simple thing to fill some boxes, pray for them, and know that God is using them for an eternal purpose. You know, there's, I, just imagine the stories. I never had this thought till just now. Imagine the stories. When we're in glory, when this whole thing has been consummated, we're in glory. People of every kindred, nation, and tongue are gathered together. And I think one of the huge things we're going to do, and it's why it's going to take forever, is we're going to be retelling our stories to each one and in groups and whatever of how magnificent God was and how he worked in our lives. The things he brought about to work in our lives to bring us to himself. Imagine how many stories are going to be told simply because of these boxes. It's going to be wonderful, friends. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. Headwinds, they're going to come, but they can't stop the church of Jesus Christ. So let's labor for him. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have absolute confidence that we're playing on a winning team when we're playing on Christ's team. That the one who is ahead over the church has determined the outcome and has the power to do that. So Father, may the reality of that, may it, may it infuse us with enthusiasm to serve you regardless of headwinds we face, regardless of those who don't want us to speak about the Savior, regardless of what pressure they may bring upon us. And Lord, it doesn't seem impossible to us as we see where our culture's going. That's only going to get harder for believers in America. We see that and who knows one day how they're going to try and stop the voice of Christians right here in America, Father. It's possible. May we have the strength to withstand even that and continue to make Christ know, knowing the victory is in him. In whose name we pray.
Amen.